Look with me in Philippians 4. We're looking at verses 5 to 7 today. But for context, we'll pick back up in verse 4 because I think verse 4 really drives this text all the way through verse 9. Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or gentleness, some translations, big-heartedness, some translations, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to a text that deals with an issue that plagues us all. Anxiety. And yet we recognize that the Bible, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the Apostle of God, the Apostle Paul, is not leaving us without resources. We pray that we would come to a deeper understanding of those resources today. That we understand in Paul is in Christ Jesus. And I pray your spirit would meet each person here in their needy place. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friday night, I was at a, a freshman orientation at Boys College as I teach there. And I was in a group of young students, young incoming freshmen and their parents, when my dad called. Well, I felt like something was up because my dad absolutely hates talking on the phone. But I couldn't answer it because I was in the middle of a conversation. About two minutes later, my brother called. And I thought, I've got to answer this got to see what's going on. So I stepped aside, answered the phone, and my brother in tears told me that my mother had had a heart attack. I prayed over him. We didn't know her condition at that point, at moment. She was on her way. The ambulance was taking her to the hospital. She'd passed out, obviously. Then I called my dad, and I prayed over him. And then it was the waiting game. I was planning to head home. Didn't know what the situation was at that moment. But within 30 to 45 minutes, my brother texted me and said he was in the ER with mom. She had been... Stabilized, she was okay. She was diagnosed with congestive heart failure, among other things. It's a call I've been fearing for six years since she had her five bypasses. Some of y'all may remember that six years ago. And I decided not to go after I got on the phone with her and she comforted me. She when I got on the phone with her and heard her voice, 
the floodgates broke, and I didn't know if I'd ever talk to her again. We all know what it's like to receive dreaded news. We've received that kind of news over the past weeks here. We also know what it's like to live in fear of receiving dreaded news. We live in a fallen and broken world. Life is dangerous. We may not have Genghis Khan sweeping across the plains, destroying everything in his path, but life is dangerous no matter where and when we live. In other words, naturally speaking, there are legitimate reasons for anxiety. Our world is anything but certain, and that anxiety will, will play itself out vertically in our fellowship with God, and it will certainly play itself out horizontally in our relationship with those around us. The Apostle Paul knows that. He's very aware of that. But he also knows that our true citizenship is not here. We saw that earlier in chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. Located where our anxiety is not generally directed. Our anxiety is generally directed in the city of man, isn't it? He also knows that we're called to walk in a manner worthy of our new citizenship. Chapter 1, verse 27. That is our calling. That's why we are here. As light in darkness. Chapter 2, verse 15. And being riddled with anxiety does not reflect that our identity and our hope is in that city. The city of God. Which makes our citizenship less than compelling to unbelievers and the world. But fourth, he also knows... That a Christian does not have to be overcome with anxiety. Indeed, it's the antithesis of the Christian life. The life plagued with anxiety and worry and fear. As we saw last week, the Christian life is a life of joy. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And that's what Paul's getting at, really, in this last chapter. These are last-minute instructions as he's closing out this letter for the Christian life. It's like what I saw on Friday. As I was seeing these parents tearfully say goodbye to their 18-year-olds. And I feel that even more now as I have a 10th grader. It's getting close. They're saying goodbye to these sons and daughters that they've had at their table for 18 years. And they're giving them last-minute instruction. Don't use the credit card unless it's an emergency, which for some is a midnight run to Taco Bell. 
Make sure you stay up with your homework. Don't sleep in Dr. Payne's class. Well, they didn't say that. I was thinking that. Last minute instructions. But in this case, the last minute instructions have to do with the Christian life. What is the Christian life? And we saw last week that the Christian life is a life of joy. Anything else is a parody. In fact, joylessness is a sin. We are commanded to rejoice. And that joy is actually the joy of Christ. John 15, 11. The life of Christ being lived out through the believer by the Spirit. It's the supernatural life. It's anything but natural. Today, building off of that, verse 4, which drives the entire text, the Christian life is a life of joyful reasonableness. Look with me in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In other words, there's this other, other's orientation to life when a person is rejoicing in the Lord. True joy is an inward looking. It's not the isolated life. We can't be joyful without considering our stance to those around us. Indeed, he says, everyone. Now, this word, reasonableness, it can be defined in so many different ways that there's a semantic range to this word. Um, It can mean gentleness, uh, graciousness, considerate. It means to be mild in reacting to others, even when they may not be mild towards you. It means yielding, being gentle. Even when those around you are being unyielding. James teaches in James 3.17 that the wisdom from God, the wisdom that which is from above, is reasonable. It shows that you're in Christ who is our wisdom from God. This trait, being reasonable, is nourished... From a heart disciplined by the daily expression of joy in all things. It's a heart that's been disciplined in joy. A heart that has been informed and energized by joy. Joy in Christ. When your joy is in Christ, you don't expect anything in the creation to add to that. It's the outward demeanor of a heart at rest, confident in God's goodness and his sovereignty. It's a disposition that allows one to to offer even generosity to those who are aggressive towards you. It's supernatural. It's, It's joy energized. Again, when your joy is in Christ, you're not needy. But when you develop joy source amnesia, you go on a joy source hunt. And you become a very needy individual. And that's what makes you unreasonable with people around you. 
And this is also a, a warning to be not overly rigorous on non-city of God issues. Do you know people who are just rigorous and legalistic on city of man issues? Things that really do not matter in the scheme of things. Well, this quality, reasonableness, means that I will not be that way on issues that really have no enduring impact. And that's what joy does for us. But joy isn't the only motivation. In the second part of verse 5, we see another motivation, a beautiful motivation. So we see here that the Christian life is a life of joyful fear. You say, where does the word fear come here? Well, this is a good fear. It's a reverential awe of the presence of God in Christ. Notice with me in the second part of verse 5, he says, Be reasonable to all. The Lord is at hand. Now, it's not clear if this is referring to Jesus' imminent return or if it's referring to his his presence with us, his covenantal presence, his, his Shekinah glory presence by his spirit. The context would, would favor his return. Chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, he says, Our citizenship is not in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. That's referring to his return, who will transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body, into the likeness of his glorious body by the power by which he subjects all things to himself. That speaks to his return clearly. So in that case, imagine this. He is telling you to be reasonable with unreasonable people. Christ could come back at any moment. Good illustration to... Help us drive that home. In 1959, it was announced to the city of Chicago that the Queen of England was going to visit. And so the whole city began to prepare for the Queen. And all of these different hotels got contacted that they may be the place where the Queen would stay during her visit to Chicago. But then they contacted the historic Drake Hotel. Maybe you have... Walked by there. I've never been able to. They've never invited me in. But I have walked outside the Drake Hotel. And they contacted the manager. And here's what the manager said to the city planner here. We are making no special plans for the queen. Our rooms are already ready for royalty. Makes me want to stay at the Drake. The point is clear. They're always ready. Maybe that's what Paul is saying. One of the evidences that you are ready because the Lord is at hand is that the way you interact with other people, even unreasonable people, you live in light of his return. But it also may be referring to his presence. The Lord is at hand. Be reasonable. The Lord is present. Be aware of that. Just because you don't see his human body does not mean he's not present. So you think and you practice the presence of God in Christ, it will completely change our disposition towards others. 
For one, I would say, I'm just going to let Jesus handle this. I'm not going to take revenge. He is going to be the good judge. And so there may be some ambiguity in what Paul is saying because he has both in mind. Maybe Paul is thinking both realities. So Jesus' return should cause us to reprioritize earthly things. What really matters? You are presently located in the city of man, but that's not your citizenship. He's coming again. And when he comes, everything in the city of man will be terminated. You can be reasonable with that mentality. Or, if he's speaking about Christ's presence, it should encourage us that we will be enabled, we have divine resources to be reasonable around unreasonable people. He'll resource us, in fact. In fact, he will resource us for those things that we are prone to worry about. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Why be anxious? That brings us to the, fi- uh, the, the third point. The Christian life is a life of joyful war on worry. It's a war on worry that we will not see completed until the end. But it's a war on worry. Look with me in verse 6. He says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't disconnect that. The Lord is at hand. Which means he's going to return in time and he's going to fix the broken things. All the possible things that you could ever worry about. He's going to make the sad things come untrue. Revelation 21.4. But he's also present to resource you. Now Paul in Philippians 2, I believe verse 28... He even uses the word anxiety for himself. So you have to consider the context when he's referring to a word, just like we do in the English language. In that case, he was anxious about city of God matters. So that does not lead to a kind of uh, fear, unhealthy fear. You have to consider the context. When he is saying here... Do not be anxious about anything. He's very aware he used that word in chapter 2 to refer to his own anxiety towards the church. What he's saying here is don't be anxious about city of man concerns. You're in the city of God. That's your ultimate reality. That's your destination. The kind of anxiety that unhinges and paralyzes and harasses and incapacitates you. Anxiety is a hijacker. If you don't agree with anything else I'm saying today, you would agree with that. It hijacks our time. When you're anxious, you can't even concentrate on work. On family. On important things. It hijacks our rest. When you're anxious, your sleep is at best restless. You toss 
you turn. It hijacks your health. We are holistic beings, and so what affects us spiritually affects us physically. What affects us physically affects us spiritually. It also hijacks your obedience. Anxiety is a sin. This kind of anxiety. Not just concern about issues. We are called to be concerned about issues. But this kind of anxiety that he's referring to is a sin. And it leads to other sins. Sins like irritability. Short-tempered. Lovelessness. Because you tend to turn in on yourself when you're anxious. Lovelessness is a sin. Addictions. Because you're trying to mask the pain. Mask the concerns. Mask the fears. Laziness. Because anxiety can just lead to a kind of despair that takes away all motivation for work. And... On the flip side, for some, overwork. And it also hijacks our hope. Because we fear the future. Tim Keller said that anxiety is believing that God is going to get it wrong. One philosopher, Siren Kierkegaard, don't agree with a lot of things that he Held, but this is true. Warriors, warriors feel every blow that never falls. Now, there's some blows that fall. Our church has taken some blows. Families in our churches have taken some blows. Most of the things we fear don't ever fall, though. Warriors feel every blow that never falls, and they cry over things they will never lose. And this inner turmoil generally reflects that I have, get this, taken ownership of my life and not stewardship. I've taken on the ownership. There's no one I can appeal to. It's like a homeowner. I learned that the hard way. When I bought my first house in 1996, the dishwasher broke. Picked up the phone to call the landlord. There was no landlord. It occurred to me, the man in the mirror is the landlord. That's what worrying does. It reflects ownership. You've taken ownership of your life. Not only that, you're now the governor, the president of the city of man. Your thoughts and affections are not in the city of God. They're the city of man and you're running it. And all of it falls on you. And remember, the church at Philippi had much more at the natural level to worry about than we do in the West. There was an imperial persecution on the Philippian believers. Which meant that if you didn't burn incense and and bow the knee to Caesar, you could lose everything. Including your life. Hebrews tells us about those times where they would come in and plunder your house. Lose your careers, lose your jobs. There was hunger issues. We know that by reading 
from historians of that time. Disease and death were rampant. We don't read about it in the scripture, but we know it was a real issue in the church in the first century. There was inner division going on. And they were impoverished. We know that because of 2 Corinthians 8. The churches in Macedonia, the, the church of Philippi, part of that, were materially impoverished people. They had much more to worry about than us. And to be sure, it's legitimate. We're not robots. It's legitimate to be alarmed about such things. To be concerned about such things. But being alarmed and being anxious are two different things. Anxiety controls you. An alarm may just sober you up to your responsibilities. I mean, we have alarms on our phones today. There's nothing wrong with being alarmed. But as one writer says, anxiety is like carrying an alarm clock all day. And there's no snooze. And Paul wants that alarm clock shut off. Not only for your own personal benefit, but because of the responsibility and the role the church has in the greater culture. And what is his prescription? You're expecting these techniques at this point, because we live in a techniques-driven, therapeutic culture. There's no technique. In fact, what he prescribes is very predictable. But it's foolproof, if you will believe it. Second part of verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Anxiety needs an alternative. It needs something bigger and better that will make the concerns fall in their rightful place. The concerns have become enormous. They've become our ultimate reality. And anxiety needs something bigger and better to chasten the concerns. Legitimate concerns. But they've taken on ruling godlike status. That's sinful anxiety. Paul says the way to be anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. Anxiety struggles to thrive in an atmosphere of prayer. Doesn't mean you won't grieve. Grieving at broken things in a fallen world is right. Doesn't take away the grief. Doesn't take away the concern. But it takes away the stranglehold. As D.A. Carson has said, Great New Testament scholar. I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who enjoys an excellent prayer life. I have yet to meet a chronic worrier 
who enjoys an excellent prayer life. One of the great indictments on Western culture is we don't, we're not a praying people. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter when we were going through that study? He says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And he's a, he's a fisherman. Peter's a fisherman. And, and casting is the verb that was used for casting a net. He says, you, you cast those wor- worries and anxieties and fears like a net onto God. Because he cares for you. But most of our lives, most of the people, even in the church today, are so distracted by city of man distractions... That even a three-minute quiet time seems like a burden. And then they wonder, where's God? And Paul offers a robust catalog of prayer vocabulary. Not because there's hard, fast distinctions between these words. But he's trying to wake us up. From our prayerless slumber. slumber. Notice these words. He says. Prayer. Most often this word is used. In the New Testament. For intercession for others. And I've been thinking about that. Why does he call us to pray for others. When I'm the one that's worried. Well again. Inordinate worry and fear. Turns you in on yourself. You become self absorbed. And so this is a means of getting out of yourself. Supplication. That's an urgent request to meet a need. Do you realize that the healthiest person in here is no less needy than a stage 4 cancer patient? But we lose sight of that. And therefore, we lose the urgency. I'm convinced that one of the reasons the Lord gives us a glimpse into difficulty is he he wants us to maintain that urgency. This is an urgent word, this supplication. This is doxological desperation. You're doing business with God. You've been sobered to reality. And he says with thanksgiving. Notice, he, not, he doesn't say once God has answered you, then you thank him. You come to him with thanksgiving. I've never met a person who's subsumed with anxiety that radiates thanksgiving. Thankful people don't struggle that way. And then he says, let your request be made known to God. In other words, everything that causes you concern, everything, there's no small things. Someone hurts your feelings, start praying for that person. Start praying that God will give you grace to respond to that person, ever how they may treat you. Just anything. Let your request be made known to God. I did that Friday night. My brother crying on the phone 
And I prayed over him. Not because I'm so spiritual. You would have done the same thing. As I prayed, and as I prayed for my dad, something remarkable happened. The concern and the grief didn't go away. But the anxiety did. So much so that Heather, who's in Texas right now with her family, told me on the phone, she said, you, you're handling this so much better than I would have thought you would have. And it wasn't because I thought God's going to heal her. He may not. I pray that he does. It was an inexpressible, inexplainable peace. That brings us to the final point. The Christian life is a life of joyful shalom. The Hebrew word for peace, which the New Testament writers would have picked up. But as we're going to see, it's much more than just peace. Look only in verse 7. I've given you a prerequisite, Paul says. This doesn't happen by osmosis. But if you do business with God on your face, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. The seed of your affections, your heart. And the... Seed of your thoughts, your minds. Notice, in Christ Jesus. Eight times we read that in this text. In Christ Jesus. Our union in Christ. In Christ Jesus. Jammed into this one phrase is everything good. Everything we long for. The peace of God. Peace. Harmony. Contentment, well-being. Everything that defines and constitutes the blessed life is found in that phrase, the peace of God. It's what the Old Testament calls shalom. You know, we know there's not a person in this room that wants to be anxious. We know we don't want fears. We know we don't want anxiety. But if you really considered what you want, indeed, what you need, it's found right here. The peace of God. It's what motivates every act. But when we have peace source amnesia, we go on a search in the created order for it. And it just adds to the anxiety. Shalom. This is the way God intended it. After all, Romans 15, 33, I believe, he is the God of peace. He's the God of peace. You see, there's one bit of data that the chronic worrier, the perennially anxious, never factor into their false prophecies. And that's what anxiety is. It's being a false prophet. Because you're projecting onto the future a lot of things that probably won't even happen. 
And there's one bit of data that these chronic warriors, including me at times, never fit it, figure into our equation. Grace and peace in the future. Isn't that what the Israelites were taught by the manna? You gather enough for today. God will show up again tomorrow. On Friday, no, it was yesterday. Yesterday, we were in Indiana with the freshmen. They, they now take the freshmen at Boyce and they, they take them to a retreat in Indiana. And I was in a discussion with this fellow, this young boy, 18. He was almost trembling. Broke my heart for him. He never left his mom and dad. Now he's here by himself. Doesn't know anybody. By the way, I think God, when you're ministering to people, he gives you the gift of grief. Because you can't really minister to people if you don't have, if you can't share in their grief. Be of good cheer. <laughs> and I felt his grief. And he said, I'm worried about the semester. I hear about how much you have to read here. And I'm just worried. And I miss my parents. And I told him, the reason you're worried about the semester is that God's grace for the semester hasn't showed up yet. He's only given you grace for today. And I said, hasn't he given you grace today? And he's going to give it to you tomorrow. And one of the ways he's going to teach you that your, his grace is sufficient, he's going to test you on it. He's going to test you on it. And you're going to wonder, will, will, he, will his grace show up tomorrow? Will his peace show up tomorrow? And then tomorrow you're going to learn, yes, it will. And the condition for experiencing this grace and experiencing this peace isn't that God grants all our requests. If he granted all of our requests, it would be chaos. Because we don't have the wisdom to know even what to request. Indeed, peace doesn't mean that he's going to eliminate trials or pain in your life. If we've just been laid off and we don't have any extra money in the bank, we tend to think that God's grace and peace means that tomorrow we're going to get an even better job. And that the, the company that just laid you off is going to repent and then give you a severance. It may happen, but that's not the promise here. That's not the promise here. What is the promise? Something better. The peace of God. That's what we were created for. That's what our hearts long for. The promise is God himself, who is the God of peace. Peace. 
This peace is the, the peace that God has in himself. It's who he is. It's his character. It's his very nature. Peace in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After all, God isn't beset with anxieties. Why? Because he's declared the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46. He knows what's going to happen from the beginning to the end. And he is working out all things together for the good of those who love him. He's working out his purposes. He's directing all things in accordance with his will. And his will is informed by infinite wisdom and infinite benevolence. Anxiety is failing to trust his goodness. And Paul writes about this peace as if it were a military garrison. The word guard here, in fact, listen to this. He uses this very word in 2 Corinthians 11.32 to refer to the, to the governor who will guard the city of Damascus. And he himself is being guarded. He's chained to, a, to these imperial guards, the greatest guards in the Roman world. And he's probably meditating on these realities. And just like these guards are guarding him, there's a greater reality in which this points to. The peace of God from the God of peace will guard your heart and it'll guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing to Christians. You're not born in Christ Jesus. You're united to Christ when you trust in him. When you trust in his provision. The only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That peace is found exclusively in Jesus. In other words, there's not one shred of peace outside of him. There's stupid peace that comes from a bottle. That peace wears off quickly. There's not one shred of real peace that is found outside of Christ. And this is a game changer for us. We are in Christ. We are protected in Christ. No matter what circumstances come, we're in Christ. We will hurt. We will ache. We will grieve. We will cry. But we're in Christ. Think about it this way. Remember in the early 2000s when the, I think it even may be on now, I don't know, but uh, who wants to be a millionaire and Regis Philbin? And, and man, I would just start panicking when these people were answering these questions. And imagine you're on that show and you're asked a math question. And now the millions are about to go down the drain. But your lifeline, now I looked this up this week. I don't just know this off the tip of my head. Your lifeline is Andrew Wiles, the greatest living mathematician in the world. That's your lifeline for the math question. You're okay. Are you flying, your interpreters, and the pilots in here? Please forgive my rudimentary illustration here because you... <laughs> You, you will realize this is not a real smart illustration, but you're going to get the point. You're in the 
you're in the air and the plane is spinning around in the middle of the storm. And then you realize the pilot is Sully Sullenberger. He can land any plane. You're okay. In other words, Paul's not promising you're not going to take hits. You live in a fallen world. We've taken them. We will continue to take them. But he's given us Christ. We're in Christ. But this came at a cost. I love this quote from William Hendrickson. We'll close here. Peace is the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. Peace is the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. To make sense of that, Jesus Christ came and he took what you and I deserve because God is good and he is righteous and he is holy. He took the storm of God's judgment in our place for those who would trust him. And for those who now trust in God's provision in Jesus, the shalom of God is able to come to bear because we've been made fit for his presence. Not because of anything we have done. We're unrighteous. We are sinners. But because of what Christ has done. And now in Christ, the shalom of God can come to bear on every situation we may face. And will come to bear. So peace is the deep-seated conviction that Romans 8.32 is true. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? In other words, God has proven that he is invested in you, most supremely because of the gospel. The night of the tragedy, Wayne Mears rehearsed the gospel to me. Because he didn't feel the goodness of God. He couldn't necessarily even see the goodness of God at that moment. But he knew it because of the gospel. He preached the gospel to me that night. Reminding, yes, me, but him. That God is good. Romans 8.32, he's invested in us. And that is the peace that Paul says is ours. It's untouchable. It's, in, it's inexplainable. It surpasses all understanding. You can't make sense of it. And for those who aren't yet believers that are here this morning, let me just say this as we close. Your present anxiety and fears is actually a grace. It's actually a mercy. It's actually a blessing. It functions like pain receptors. You know, pain receptors are good. If you don't have pain receptors, you put your hand on the stove, you don't know your hand is frying. Pain receptors are good. Let your anxiety and fears 
drive you to the Prince of Peace in faith and repentance. Let's pray.